The Hamlet Podcast, episode 72. Hello and welcome to this final episode of our exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth, with me your host, Connor Hanretty. I'm not entirely sure why I landed upon the number 72 as I was dividing the play for this series. Thrice to mine, and thrice to thine, and thrice again to make up nine would only get me so far, but anyway, here we are. The final scene of the play, Act 5, Scene 9. Shakespeare keeps us guessing till the last, and has sent Macbeth and Macduff off stage at the end of the penultimate scene to have their final battle out of sight. Before the new scene begins, there's a curious stage direction that instructs retreat and flourish. It's not a very common direction, but it also happens in almost exactly the same place in Richard III, a final fatal altercation between the title character and his nemesis and the end of a battle. Now, PhD dissertations have been written on the staging of Shakespeare's battle scenes, along with scholarly articles that have compared these two plays in particular, and if you want more on that I'll direct you to the show notes for this episode. For now, what's fascinating is this little musical moment, retreat and flourish. The retreat was a sound from the trumpets to instruct the forces to retreat, that the fight was over. So, from music alone, we are told that there is an outcome. Then, there's a flourish, which suggests a victory, perhaps, or the arrival of an important person onto the stage. It's a tiny stage direction, and so often it's tempting to skim over these while reading one of the plays, but I love that there's a clue written here to tell the audience what to watch and what to listen for. Next, we get the drum and colours again, according to these stage directions, and with them enters Malcolm, along with Seward and Ross and any other thanes and soldiers left. Given that we've been so frequently back and forth between sides during Act 5, we might imagine that this is just another of these episodes, but the retreat and flourish has actually told us that the battle is over and the day is done. It's Malcolm that speaks first. I would the friends we miss were safe arrived. It's quite a beautiful line. Malcolm is hoping that those who are not there with him will arrive soon. Seward answers. Some must go off. And yet by these I see, so great a day as this is cheaply bought. Some must go off. Seward is very practical in terms of the human cost of these battles. This could even be an acting metaphor. Some of the characters in our story must go off or exit the stage. It's a short little line, but I think it's very moving, not least since we already know that he has lost his son. He points out that there hasn't been too much loss on their side. The irony is terrible. He says that so great a day as this is cheaply bought. They haven't had to spend too much manpower or human life on this victory. Returning to his idea of absent friends, Malcolm notes that Macduff is missing and your noble son. Messenger to the last, Ross has to share the news. Your son, my lord, has paid a soldier's debt. He only lived but till he was a man, the which no sooner had his prowess confirmed in the unshrinking station where he fought, but like a man he died. 
Ross isn't the most sensitive here, making what sounds like a pun between debt and death. The idea was, of course, that a soldier, once engaged, could pay with his life at any time, and young Seward has done so. Shakespeare chose to make Seward a very young man, perhaps to contrast with whoever was playing his father, and now Ross continues the description. He only lived long enough to reach adulthood in age, and no sooner had he proved his mettle in a fight, he died like a man. Young Seward is described as holding his ground. The unshrinking station implies that he didn't back down or shrink away from his opponent who, as we've seen, was Macbeth. We had station used in this way, one's position or standing place, back in Hamlet, who described his father with a station like the Herald Mercury. Poor young Seward is the last casualty of Macbeth's reign. He only lived but till he was a man, the which no sooner had his prowess confirmed in the unshrinking station where he fought, but like a man he died. It's a nice little elegy, but after so short a life and an even shorter military career, there's very little else to say, with the royally important exception of Fleance, and of course Malcolm, every child we meet in this play has been killed. Macbeth has killed Macduff's children, and now Seward's son. This grieving father has to ask, then he is dead, completing Ross's line of verse. Ross continues, I, and brought off the field. Your cause of sorrow must not be measured by his worth, for then it hath no end. Before Seward even has to ask about his son's remains, Ross assures him that his body has been taken from the field. He hasn't been left unattended. Seward should not measure his grief in terms of his son's worth or merits, because then it will be infinite. This is high praise indeed. Seward now asks, had he his hurts before? This to us might seem a very curious question. It's not about time before, but about location. Seward wants to know if the wounds that killed his son are on the front of his body. If they were on his back, this would suggest that he was killed while running away. If he has his hurts before, it signifies that he died fighting, which was considered an honourable death. Ross confirms, I, on the front. So young Seward died fighting. His father says, Why then, God's soldier be he. Had I as many sons as I have hairs, I would not wish them to a fairer death. And so his knell is knolled. Seward's relief here gives us a sense of how brutal and militant a world we're still in. He cannot decide how to grieve his son until he knows how he died. And once it is confirmed that he died in a way considered honourable, he can mourn. He prays that his son will go to heaven and be God's soldier now instead. And indeed, he proclaims that if he had as many sons as he has hairs, he couldn't wish any of them a better death than this. There's another pun here between heirs and hairs. It's odd that there are puns in this scene at all, and we've already had two of them. Seward had a historical reputation for stoic bravery and dignity, and Shakespeare echoes this now in his short comment, and so his knell is knolled. The funeral bell has tolled for his son. 
You'll be delighted to know that the technical term for this is a polyptoton, which I'll also explain in the show notes. Malcolm seems to feel this is not enough grief for the slain young man, and he insists he's worth more sorrow, and that I'll spend for him. This seems to echo a line from Brutus towards the end of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. Brutus promises to mourn his friend Cassius at another time. For Shakespeare's hyper-literate audiences, I wonder if they heard such echoes from his earlier plays buzzing around like a language of final scenes here. But old Seward responds, sounding rather like a Spartan in his stoic response to Malcolm. He's worth no more. They say he parted well and paid his score. And so God be with him. Here comes newer comfort. Shakespeare is compounding the myth of Seward's stern nobility. He insists that his son has died well and needs no more grief. He parted well and paid his score, and now may God be with him. Before he need brook any further argument on this, he sees someone else coming and changes the subject to this new arrival. Here comes newer comfort. Grimly, the stage directions tell us that Macduff now enters with Macbeth's head. It's possible that Macduff kneels when he enters as he says, Hail King, for so thou art. Behold where stands the usurper's cursed head. The time is free. I see thee compassed with thy kingdom's pearl that speak my salutation in their minds whose voices I desire aloud with mine. Hail, King of Scotland. Some editors over the years have altered the stage direction to suggest that Macduff brings Macbeth's head on a pole. This may echo Macduff's earlier threat to exhibit Macbeth like a monster and his painted on a pole line and so on. It would also make some sense of the line where stands the head to be observed. Of course, a production could easily display the head in any number of ways. It's a rather shocking entrance, but we need the physical evidence that Macduff has won. Hail King, he says. The king is dead, so long live the king. Malcolm should originally have succeeded Duncan, and Macduff restores order now by proclaiming him king. Behold, he says, where stands the usurper's cursed head. Here may you see the tyrant. After so many lines about how the time is out of joint and the country is bleeding, there's a huge relief to Macduff saying now that the time is free. Macduff envisages Malcolm surrounded by all the best of Scotland, his kingdom's pearl, who are all thinking, but Macduff is saying, that Malcolm is king. Macduff is really building up and rallying the assembled crowd here as he says that he desires that all voices join with him as he says, Hail, King of Scotland. The speech really does build here. I see thee compassed with thy kingdom's pearl that speak my salutation in their minds whose voices I desire aloud with mine. Hail, King of Scotland. I have spent the Christmas break reading Judy Dench's wonderful new book about her life working with Shakespeare, and in it she called these shared lines pick-up lines. 
I confess, I've never heard the phrase before, despite my having focused so much on their use throughout this play. The final pick-up line of the play is here, when all assembled echo Macduff and complete his line by shouting, Hail, King of Scotland! Order is restored now, and there are no more broken lines in the play. Everything else will be in almost perfect iambic pentameter, spoken by a single voice. But, of course, you'll have spotted that, as at the beginning, that hallowed and seductive, ruinous word, hail, has been said three times. Directors over the years and decades have loved to reintroduce the witches and their siren-like ability to lead men astray and have them appear on stage again here. They'll often reappear at the end of the play somehow to suggest that power will always corrupt or that the wheel of time is circular. Whether or not they are on stage, there is a flourish to confirm Malcolm's election or accession to the throne. And now he speaks the last speech of the play. Custom had it that the final lines of any play would be spoken by the person on stage with the highest rank. This was often a secondary character in a tragedy with a high body count. At the end of King Lear, there's an interesting problem to be solved if this convention is to be observed. But here, there is no question. Malcolm is now king, and so the speech must go to him. Some productions of the play may even reduce or cut the speech, but it's important. We shall not spend a large expense of time before we reckon with your several loves and make us even with you. My thanes and kinsmen, henceforth be earls, the first that ever Scotland in such an honour named. What's more to do, which would be planted newly with the time, as calling home our exiled friends abroad, that fled the snares of watchful tyranny, producing forth the cruel ministers of this dead butcher and his fiend-like queen, who, as tis thought, by self and violent hands, took off her life. This, and what needful else, that calls upon us, by the grace of grace, we will perform in measure, time and place." So thanks to all at once, and to each one, whom we invite to see us crowned at Schoon. All the way back in Act 1, Scene 4, Duncan spoke of debts and gratitude and payback, in the very scene in which he proclaimed Malcolm as his son and heir, the Prince of Cumberland. Malcolm now echoes his father's language, as well as Seward's talk of scores and settling that has been throughout this scene, we shall not spend a large expense of time before we reckon with your several loves and make us even with you. Now King Malcolm has assumed the third person, or the royal we. Only ten lines ago he was saying I, but now it's we. His point is that he will pay his debts and settle up with everyone who came to fight on his behalf. His first act as king is to create a new political order in Scotland, he announces that all of the assembled thanes and his kinsmen will now be earls. This was the first time that this rank existed in Scotland, and had been described as such in Hollandshed's Chronicle. This presumably goes down well, as everyone loves a promotion. Malcolm continues with an extremely long sentence listing everything else that needs to be done. 
planted newly, is another echo of Malcolm's father, who delighted in planting Macbeth with his new titles and laboured to see him full of growing. Again, this could be read as history repeating itself, or as Malcolm stepping up to restore the goodness that Duncan had represented. On the list of things to be done are a calling home of all those exiled friends who fled abroad to get away from the snares of watchful tyranny. Perhaps Malcolm might also get Lennox to tell him who the spies are that Macbeth put in every house in Scotland and undo all of that cruel surveillance. It is interesting that Malcolm keeps things general here, lest we forget his own brother Donalbain is still in Ireland. The historical Donalbain went on to become King Donald III of Scotland after Malcolm's death. At the end of one film version, Donalbain was seen arriving back in Scotland at the very end and dismounting from his horse to meet the witches all over again. Perhaps Shakespeare anticipated this, or perhaps he was smart enough to know that Ireland is a lovely place and Donalbain would be perfectly happy here. Next on Malcolm's list, whether or not he has any interest in seeing his brother come home, is to find and try the cruel ministers of this dead butcher and his fiend-like queen. Malcolm implies that Macbeth's allies and ministers may have gone into hiding, if, of course, they have survived the fight. They will be produced forth and dealt with. Whatever about calling Macbeth a dead butcher, we can't really argue with that, especially with Seward and Macduff standing right there with him. Malcolm's description of Lady Macbeth as the fiend-like queen always seemed to me a little bit strong. She certainly encouraged Macbeth in the killing of Malcolm's father, but she didn't actually do it. Now, some of the attraction of this play is that Lady Macbeth is evil or in league with the devil, but what always intrigues me is the opposite pair of journeys that the Macbeths take in this play. Lady Macbeth is at her most frightening in her first scene, before Macbeth even gets home. And then we watch her work and push and eventually soften and even unravel as she loses her husband. He, by contrast, goes from valiant soldier to severed head, reduced indeed to a dead butcher. Intriguingly, it is Shakespeare's own invention to suggest that Lady Macbeth died by suicide, this fiend-like queen who, as tis thought, by self and violent hands took off her life. We know nothing about the death of the historical Lady Macbeth. Her own name was Gruach. Other than that her son succeeded his stepfather Macbeth before Malcolm took the throne, we know remarkably little about what happened to her. Shakespeare couldn't have such an extraordinary character survive this play, and so he chose not to have her outlive her husband. Regardless of what Malcolm has to say about them, other commentators do like to suggest that, at its best, theirs is the happiest marriage in all of Shakespeare's plays. And when they are driven apart, both are lost. Getting back to Malcolm's list, the last item on his agenda is more general. He says that everything else that needs to be done will, by the grace of God, or the grace of grace with a capital G, all of this will be done in good time. What needful else that calls upon us, by the grace of grace, we will perform in measure, time and place. Malcolm here combines two major metaphors he's been using in the play. 
measure seems to conclude all of that language of debts and measures with which he started this speech. But the combination of measures, grace and time also refer to his very complicated language of the king becoming graces that he described in the England scene. There, he used a lot of language that describes music, grace, concord, divisions and so on. Now his combination of measure, time and place suggest that harmony can now prevail. Shakespeare has also moved us back into rhyming couplets, grace and place. And for good measure, so that we really know that it is over, he now ends the play with another. So thanks to all at once and to each one whom we invite to see us crowned at Schoon. I grew up in a house which was divided over whether the baked item was called a scone or a scone, but I have to let you know that the Scottish location here is pronounced Schoon. The stone of Schoon, which has the rather amazing alternate name the Stone of Destiny, is a ceremonial block of red sandstone that was central to the coronation of the kings of Scotland from at very least the reign of Fergus, the first king of the Scots. Its story is a chequered one, and indeed the stone was transported to Westminster Abbey for the coronation of King Charles III in May 2023. Not only that, it made the news again in November. I'll put more about the stone in the show notes, but you might be interested to know that it has been the logo for this series of the podcast throughout our journey through Macbeth. Malcolm ends the play with thanks to everyone for their support and an invitation to everyone present to attend his coronation. And with that, the play is over. It has been a much speedier journey this time, since obviously Macbeth is considerably shorter than Hamlet. I hope that you've enjoyed it, and if you're studying the play, I hope it will be of some use to you. Do not be too upset that it is over, dear listener, as I will be back tomorrow with a bonus episode. I've prepared a little quiz to test your mettle over the first quiet days of the new year ahead. Up for grabs will be a copy of that beautiful new book I mentioned by Judy Dench, all about her life with Shakespeare. And indeed, I'll also be telling you tomorrow about the play we're going to do next. So do tune in. And in the meantime, I hope you have a peaceful and enjoyable end to 2023.